0: Gerald Wilson, in his uh, commentary on the Psalms, gives the following introduction with regards to this Psalm. He writes Having wended our way in five consecutive Psalms, that's Psalm 3 through 7, Through the dark valleys of lament and pleas for deliverance, we hear the strains of a joyful melody rising from just beyond the steep hill represented by Psalm 7. And we arrive at the crest to discover a welcome prospect of breathtaking beauty and awesome delight. I think that's a good way to introduce Psalm 8, especially in light of having studied the previous Psalms. Because in previous psalms, namely Psalm 3-7, through we see David in continual states of danger of one kind or another. Whether it's him fleeing from Absalom, his son, or whether it was in Psalm 7 where the superscript read that there was a psalm which he sang to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite, who apparently was slandering David. We come to this psalm, which is a psalm that celebrates the glory of God in creation, And most particularly, as we're going to see in the psalm, God's glory as demonstrated in His creation and His design and purpose for man. As you'll see also, this psalm is referenced quite a few times in the New Testament. And we'll see that as we get into the text shortly. But first, let's consider the superscript. The superscript reads, To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. So once again, we see that this psalm was given to Israel's worship leader, if you will, Israel's music supervisor. And he was to take this psalm and it was to be played on the instrument of gath. There's different ways of rendering that expression. Set for the gatith is one way of rendering it. Um, there's some measure of mystery here. It appears to have been uh, this instrument of Gath, as one commentator noted, a guitar-like harp associated with Gath in Philistia. It's possible uh, that this was a certain kind of melody. It's also worth noting that the word gath means wine press, so this could have been a melody associated with the ingathering or the harvest, as Alec Motier notes. And as we see once again, this was a psalm of David. So that's the superscript. We don't get much historical context from the superscript. We'll get a little bit of circumstantial context, I think, from the psalm itself. We'll see that as we get into verse 3. But for right now, we begin in verse 1, where David wrote, O Lord, or O Yahweh, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. So David here begins by identifying the Lord by His covenant name, Yahweh. O Yahweh. And then he identified Yahweh by, if you will, you might say, His position. O Yahweh, our Adonai. Adonai is a word that essentially means sovereign one or master. It's worth noting that the word for Adonai here, again inflected, is in the plural. So it's plural, it's the noun of apposition which is further describing Yahweh. He is the Lord, notably here He is our Lord, and it's in the plural which likely connotes the greatness of His majesty, the expansive nature of His Lordship. So David opens up this psalm by saying, "Oh Yahweh, our great Lord, essentially whose Lordship is so expansive. It's a great way to begin the psalm just as a little bit of application, just by way of just observational takeaway, it's a great way to begin the day. Just to start your day, and the first words that come out of your mouth are something like, "Oh Yahweh, our Lord, Master, Sovereign. It really can set the tone for the rest of the day. Not to mention, it's a good way to end the day, even as David ends the psalm this way. We'll see that when we get to verse 9. And he continued by writing... How excellent is your name in all the earth? Now, I think there are a few things for us to note here. When David writes the word excellent here, how excellent is your name? The word for excellent, as one commentator notes, combines dignity slash nobility of position with magnificence and power. I think he's right in noting that, because when you look at how this word's used, this word for excellent, it could refer to the stateliness of cedar trees it could refer by way of comparison between god and majestic mountains it can refer in psalm 76:4 as it does to the majesty of mountains it could refer to nobles men who of nobility and most ultimately it refers to the majestic noble and excellent name of god now second i want you to see that when david says your name Again, as I've noted many times before, and I'll note again now, he's referring to the sum of who God has revealed Himself to be. You might say, how God has revealed Himself to the world. How excellent is your name. The sum of your revealed excellencies and attributes, you might say. So how excellent, how magnificent, how noble is the revelation of who you are. The sum total of your revealed attributes and excellencies. And then he goes on. Third, I want you to see this prepositional phrase, in all the earth. The excellency of Yahweh's name was not limited to just Israel. But His name, His revealed excellencies and attributes can be found in all of the earth. Now, that does not mean that they are currently celebrated in all the earth. But His name and His revealed greatness is nonetheless revealed in all of the earth. It's reminiscent of what Paul said in Romans 1. In Romans 1.20, Paul wrote, "...for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, or you might say divine nature, so that they are without excuse." So His name is excellent throughout all the earth. His glorious attributes are on display throughout the entirety of this world, whether it's via the heavens declaring the glory of God, whether it's His handiwork in animals and trees, and most notably, men and women. David goes on to state here at the end of verse 1, "...who have set your glory above the heavens." So God's name is excellent in the earth. But His glory is not limited to the earth. The heavens, as I just noted, do declare His glory. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, but His glory also transcends the heavens. So if you were, so to speak, if you were to go as high as you can, and if you were to ascend the ends of finite space, you would know that God's glory cannot be contained by the finitude of creation. Earth cannot contain God's glory. Even the created realm as we know it cannot contain God's glory. His glory is above the heavens. It's above the heavens that we could see with our eyes. It's above the heavens that are so far beyond our view that even with telescopes, we can only guess what's out there. His glory is above the heavens. Psalm 113 verse 4 says, Yahweh is high above all nations. His glory above the heavens. Now, having said this in verse 1, just celebrating the excellency of God's name and how His um, name is excellent in all the earth, His glory is above the heavens, David goes from lofty ways in which God's glory is revealed, you might say, or at least allusions to that. And in verse 2, he proceeds to consider how the glory of God is exhibited through, say, the example of small children. In verse 2, we read the following, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants... You have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. So, God's glory is not only seen in looking up at the heavens or just across the earth in a general way, His glory is seen in looking down and beholding babes. Now note, the word for babes here can refer to infants, but also can refer to children. That's why you'll see in some translations, the word for babes here is rendered as children because there's a breadth of application for this word. That's, I think, important to note when you see how this text is used in the New Testament by our Lord. We'll get there in a moment. So that word for babes can refer to babies and infants and it can also refer to small children. The second word that's used here, however, nursing infants, is more particular. It's talking about sucklings. It's talking about babies who are still nursing. So that's a particular word. So out of the mouth of babes, whether it's infants or small children and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. Now I'll get to that in a moment and what that connotes and how it's rendered in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We'll get there in a moment, but I just want to look at this verse as a whole just to give you a general idea of what's going on here. In verse 2, the general idea here is essentially something like this. God's glory is displayed in the way in which He could take weak ones and use them to silence enemies and avengers. We see this kind of principle clearly stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 27 through 29. We read the following, "...but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise." And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. So one idea of why God uses weak things like Babies and nursing infants and small children to silence enemies and avengers. One idea of that is to humble man. We see that in light of First Corinthians chapter one verses twenty-seven through twenty-nine. God will use the weak to confound the mighty, to humble men, so that no one should glory in his presence. You see that First 1 Corinthians chapter one verse twenty-nine. But it is worth noting that he also demonstrates his great power and glory in the way in which he could use such weak ones to silence such strong ones. All right, back to the text itself. When you look at the text and it says, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength, it's worth noting that in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that's used here is essentially praise. Praise. Now that may mean that in this text, in the Masoretic text of the Hebrew, the word was strength, but it connotes the strength that is found in praise. That may be the idea, or the Septuagint may have it right, but we see the same word praise used when Jesus quoted this text in Matthew chapter 21 verse 16. So whichever way you go about it, you would do well to see the word here for strength as praise. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained praise. Now, when Jesus used this um, verse, when He quoted this in Matthew 21, verse 16, it was after He had cleansed the temple. You might remember Jesus had cleansed the temple. He drove out those who bought and sold therein. He overturned the tables of the money changers within the temple as well as the seats of those who sold doves. We see that in Matthew 21, verse 12. And then after that, after He cleansed the temple, we're told that the blind and the lame came in, and He healed them. Now when the chief priests saw this, they didn't celebrate and say, that's amazing! Do you see what's happening? The blind and the lame are being healed. This is amazing! That's not what they did. That's not what they said. Rather, when we look at the passage, we see that the chief priests and the scribes, they saw the wonderful things that He did. And they also saw the children crying out in the temple and saying to Him, Hosanna to the Son of David! And they were indignant. So never mind that the lame are being healed. Never mind that those who were injured and and lacked sight and so on were being given sight and so on. Well, never mind that. They were indignant that children were singing Hosanna to the Son of David. And they became angry. And so they asked Jesus, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus responded by saying, Yes. Have you never read... Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. I think it's worth noting that we don't see them say anything in response to that. You might say from a textual standpoint, maybe from a very literal standpoint, I would think, they were silenced. You might say that God used the praise of those little ones, that group of children. Jesus took that praise and then used it To silence the enemies and the avengers. The enemies of the living God. The little children praised Jesus as the incoming king. It's worth noting as well. But the religious leaders who should have recognized the king didn't. The weak who exhibited true strength in praise. And there may be a possible connection there if the Masoretic text is right. The true strength and praise being exhibited by these little ones were used by Christ to silence powerful enemies. And that, per the text, is one of the ways in which God works. God works, ordaining strength and praise through weak ones so that He might silence the enemy and the avenger. When God works in great ways through weak people, it has a way of silencing all kinds of adversaries. It's one of the ways in which we should marvel at God's greatness by looking at what He can use To bring about his purposes. It's amazing. He can work through people like you and me. Not only children and babies. But he can actually work through people like you and me. And he can get his will accomplished on earth. I remember when I worked at my grandfather's driving range, that we had this bin uh, where if you came in and you didn't have your own set of golf clubs to use, you could rent golf clubs. Or essentially, we just gave them out. I don't think we charged anything for the rental, but it was like this bin. And when I tell you the kind of clubs that were in this bin, it was a sorry bunch of clubs that were in this bin. And so I'd be there working for a bunch of hours, and um, I had I had a friend who was on the teardrop tour. For a time. And he was an excellent golfer. It was just, it was, a, it was a joy to watch him hit golf balls in the first booth and just watch the ascent of the ball and the way in which he would strike the ball. He was excellent. And one of the things that I enjoyed was him taking one of the random crooked clubs from the bin and then going into the booth and giving it his best shot. Granted, he couldn't do it all the time because some of those clubs were so bent, like the, the club head would be over here and it should be like right here. But he would take it and he would hit the ball and oftentimes not all the time it would be amazing to watch what he could do with such a crooked club and when I look at this text and I think of us I think of myself and I just think of how great God is that he could use such weak ones like us and he could glorify himself he can help others he can accomplish his purposes through weak ones like you and I not just through children and nursing infants what an awesome God Before we move on, a couple of other things just to note here, right? In Psalm 8.2, don't miss another implication of Jesus' reference to this in Matthew 21.16. It's worth noting that the religious leaders are essentially being identified as the enemies and the adversaries of God and God's people. Right? Because if the children... If Jesus is saying, have you never read? And He's referring to these children as kind of an outworking of the Psalm 8.2 children that are referenced. And the religious leaders are subsequently silenced. And we know in light of the New Testament canon that they were enemies of Christ and enemies of God. It's as though Jesus is implying that in the way that He used Psalm 8.2. There also may be a way in which Jesus is giving us yet another hint among the explicit and implicit references in the New Testament, yet alone the Old, to His deity. To His deity. Now we know if you were to study through the Old Testament, you would see that a proper understanding of the Messiah from an Old Testament perspective, not even just getting into the New Testament, just from an Old Testament perspective, if you had a right understanding of the Messiah, you would know that the Messiah is both human and divine. But the way in which Jesus quotes Psalm 8-2 in Matthew twenty one sixteen suggests that He is divine. Because it's out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants that God has ordained praise. Well, praise to who? Praise to God. And in the context, the children are saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. So you may have there an implicit reference to the deity of Christ. David continues in verses 3 and 4, revisiting the idea of God's creation and man's place in it, where we read, "...when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him?" So David begins verse 3 by saying, "...when I consider the heavens..." So David here is speaking about contemplating God's creative work in the universe... From my understanding, David didn't have something the equivalent of a telescope handy for him. He's just looking up. And when I told you we don't have much of the context of this psalm and the circumstances in which it was written, here we get a little hint to the immediate context. That David likely is looking at the night sky. I say the night sky because he's considering the universe, he's considering the sky, and he's referencing the moon and the stars, he doesn't reference the sun. So you imagine David in this moment, looking up. When I consider your heavens, God's heavens, God's creative handiwork. He's looking up. He described it as the work of God's fingers, which may connote attention to detail. That may be part of the way in which that language is meant to be understood. The results are not only, the results of God's creative work in the universe are not only a result of His power, but His creative design, as it were. What an amazing thing to think of the kind of artist that God is. That He could speak forth both the canvas and the arts upon which the, can- the, the art would fall in a fell swoop of the creation days that we see in Genesis 1. What an artist. But the idea of Him. Um, David, looking at the heavens and considering it as the work of God's fingers, may also connote the vastness of God, the infinitude of God, with the seeming, seeming infinitude of creation, namely the universe. So creation and the universe is finite. And when you think about this, this is kind of the picture that David's painting for us. He's looking at the heavens, and the heavens are vast, from a human standpoint, they seem infinite. They are not infinite, but they seem infinite. And they are the work of God's fingers, as it were. So if the heavens, which seem so vast to us, are merely the work of God's fingers, that's an anthropomorphism, right? We're not talking about the literal fingers of God, which are somewhere to be found, somewhere in the universe. No, it's an anthropomorphism, but he's basically saying, I consider this vast universe as the work of an infinitely vast God who created this universe with His fingers. And we know He spoke it into existence, but nonetheless, you see the picture that David is painting here with His words. The estimated 92 billion years, light years worth of universe was created by the fingers of God, as it were. Amazing. So again, you get the idea that David is looking up into the night sky when he wrote this with the reference to the moon and the stars. Think about what has gone through your mind when you've looked at the night sky. I mean, living here in the northeast, in Staten Island, you look up at the night sky and you might often think of how much more you could see if you lived in the south. Right? Because when we look up at the night sky, sometimes you can get a decent view of a decent amount of stars. And oftentimes, because of the light pollution, as it were, you can't really get a good view. But sometimes, if you're even in a place that's a little bit darker than other places, if you've looked up into the night sky, what have you thought? What has gone through your mind? You've probably, as a Christian, thought, wow, God is great. Look at at how the heavens declare the glory of God. David is looking at God's creation, and you'll notice that he not only thinks about the greatness of God, but he thinks of how very small we are in comparison to the vastness of God's creation seems like David caught an idea of that, which thus prompted him to ask, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? So David didn't look at the night sky and see the moon and the stars, and he didn't come to the conclusion that some people come to thinking that human beings are just one of the many evolutionary creatures that emerge from the same variables of time, motion, matter, and chance and thus conclude, in some cases people do, that there must be alien life out there. That's not what David did. Leaving aside the fact that, as you know, earth was created on day one, as opposed to the rest of what populates the universe, the planets and the stars and the moon and the sun on day four. Leaving aside that Isaiah said that God created the earth to be inhabited. David looks at this creation, and then he comes and he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? He recognized, as we're going to see, the unique position that God has given to man. But before he outlines what that is, and that's what he does do, you'll see in the verses that follow, he says that there's a unique place that man has in God's creation design. But before he gets there, he first sees that it's an amazing thing that God would even consider man. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? One of the things you always want to be on the lookout for when you study through the Psalms is what attributes of God are on display when you go through the Psalms. And here you not only see the vastness and the glory and the excellency of God's name, but you see the kindness and the compassion of God as exhibited via the mindfulness that David communicates here. What is man that you are mindful of him? Your creation is so vast. You are infinitely more vast than your creation. Yet man who is so small, yet alone so sinful, is someone that you are so mindful of. I think that's amazing to consider. And then when you think of God's mindfulness towards man in the general sense, that does make you marvel, but then when you consider God's mindfulness towards His people in a very particular sense, the redeemed that He has, that loved before the foundation of the world, that should make you marvel even more. And perhaps a vehicle to help you marvel would be Psalm 40 verse 5 where David wrote the following, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. God is mindful of you, son or daughter of the living God. He is very mindful of you, and that should make you marvel. Your Savior can sympathize with your infirmities. He follows you with goodness and mercy. or following you all the days of your life, to use language from Psalm 23.6. Your Savior walks with you and shepherds you. God knows your wanderings. He bottles your tears. He is mindful of the hairs on your head, yet alone the thoughts and feelings in your mind and in your heart. God is very mindful of you. Not just in the general sense in which He is mindful of man, but in the very particular sense, in the way in which a father would be mindful of his son or his daughter. So you got this beautiful picture. What is man that you're mindful of him? But then, it's as though David kind of builds upon that a little bit with this form of Hebrew parallelism that seems to kind of build a little bit upon what was said previously. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? And that you visit him. The visiting here likely connotes the way in which God, in a caring way, interacts with humankind. God visits his people with acts of compassion and kindness. Well, that brings us to verses 5 through 8. I'm going to begin just by reading verse 5, and then we'll get through verses 6 through 8 shortly. For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. So first note, how David observed that God has made man a little lower than the angels. A little lower than the angels. Well, how is man, right now, currently lower than the angels? Well, here's a few ideas. A. Angels exceed men and women by way of capability. For example... They are able to go from the presence of God to their assignments on earth. Say Gabriel for existence. I am Gabriel who stand in the presence of God, so they have greater capability, and that's just one way of seeing their greater capability. They have, angels do, they exceed men and women by way of power, so they have greater power. I mean, with ease, angels were able to blind men. Remember in the Sodom and Gomorrah account remember that one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. So angels exceed men and women by way of power. Angels also see by way of serving in the presence of God, they have a glory that fallen humankind does not. So currently, currently, man is a little bit lower than the angels. But that's only for a little while. It's worth noting that there's a possibility that the language here for little could be noted as a little while. So the way in which man is a little bit lower than the angels is for a little while. Because remember the Apostle Paul said to the church of Corinth, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? So there's coming a time in which the sons and daughters of God are going to be raised up to a place of glory, reigning with Christ. But for the time being, man has been made lower than the angels. Now on a textual note, it's worth noting that the word for angels here is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is most often used with reference to God. But it can be used with reference to false gods. It can be used with reference to angels and rulers within the Old Testament. Some, some think that here, David did use the word Elohim with reference to God. And that in the New Testament, which I'm going to get to in a moment, where New Testament writers were quoting this verse, that as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, they gave the reference of angels because of the context in which it's found, say, in Hebrews 2. But again, in the Septuagint, we do see the word here as angels, and that is a legitimate rendering, a possible rendering of Elohim. But we do see in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, you made Him a little lower than the angels. Angels. Now third, think about this. Think of how amazing it is to think about the Son of God The uncreated Son of God who took on human flesh. He shared in the state of man and in that sense, He who always was who took on human flesh in the Incarnation was made a little bit lower than the angels. In Hebrews 2.9 we read, but we see Jesus, more about that shortly, who was made a little lower than the angels For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. So here, in Psalm chapter 8, verse 5, David is kind of flashing back to Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, implications that even go beyond that. And he's thinking of man's design purpose by God in the universe. But we see the writer of Hebrews applying this most ultimately to the perfect man. The Son of God who took on human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the connection between Psalm 8.4 has application to mankind in general, but very specifically by way of New Testament usage to Jesus Christ. God made mankind a little bit lower than the angels. God crowned mankind with glory and honor. You'll see that in verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 8 dominion over his creation and so on. He made man in the image and likeness of God. He mandated man to exercise dominion on the earth. But seeing as Adam sinned and he plunged his posterity into sin, there needed to come a second Adam, a last Adam. So the Son of God took on human flesh, was made a little bit lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Think about that. The eternal Son of God taking on a state that in that human state, He was going to be, as a human, taking on human, being truly human while still being truly God. He was going to be made for a little while lower than the angels. And having died on the cross for sinners, He was raised on the third day. He ascended into heaven 40 days later and is crowned with ultimate glory and honor. And redeemed man will one day, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, share in that glory and honor. Well, there are a few other things that can be noted, but up for this point, I will move on back to the text. Consider the way in which David, in verses 6 through 8, considers some of the aspects of the glory and honor that God has given to man. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. David here appears to be thinking back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. There in the text we read, Then God said, Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So man was given a unique position in the creation design of exercising dominion over the works of God's hands. Man, and I'm speaking here of mankind being made in God's image and likeness according to God's command, And you can see also by virtue of the capabilities that mankind has in comparison to beasts of the field, whether it's domesticated or undomesticated animals. You see that distinction in the language in verses 6 through 8 of the different animals that are referenced. So mankind has been given a dominion over the created world. We see that in Genesis 1. And even though mankind has fallen, there is still a call to exercise dominion over the created realm. And then one day that exercise of dominion will be perfectly manifested in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and His subsequent reign. But I want us to note a couple of things here. This dominion that is spoken of over all the different things that are listed here and in Genesis one through 26-28, all of that is not a license for abuse or mismanagement of the resources that God has given man to be in charge of. Human beings are meant to manage God's creation wisely for the good of man, and for the glory of God. So note, there isn't a place for worshiping the creation, right? You don't look at earth and say, we love Mother Earth. Gotta treat Mother Earth right. No, no, it's God's earth. God created this earth, and we are called to be stewards of this earth. Not called to worship the earth. And this is not a a reason to say that Christians should have some sort of responsible concern for the environment and ecology at large is not to say that, you know what, you should just leave animal life alone. Never kill an animal for food because that's wrong. No, according to Genesis chapter 9 verse 3, God even gave animals to men to eat. God's okay with that. We're supposed to exercise dominion over the land. So that's not a worshiping of the land. That's not and abuse of the land. That doesn't mean you can't touch the land, just let the land do what it's going to do. No, man is supposed to exercise dominion over the land. It doesn't mean that the land becomes such a high priority that you treat the land in such a way that human beings suffer because of your view of the land or creation. Just as a brief aside in this moment, I call to mind the fact that with what's going on now with climate change concerns in our land, there is a big drive to treat the land and the earth in such a way that people view the earth and the created realm in a way that contradicts the Word of God. The earth is meant to be stewarded by man responsibly, responsibly, But to buy into lies that if man does not do a certain thing, man will plunge the entirety of humanity into ruin goes against the Word of God. God's Word clearly says in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Climate change. Will not bring an end to earth. God has made that clear in a place like Genesis 822. But nonetheless, man has been given uh, a calling to rule and exercise dominion, but to exercise it responsibly for the glory of God and for the good of men and women. Now I want us to look at, look at the second half of verse six. That little phrase there, you have put all things under his feet. I think this will be of great encouragement to you. You have put all things under his feet. Again, that speaks to the authority that God gave to mankind in the creation mandate. But in the New Testament, we see that little phrase applied multiple times to Jesus. To Jesus. This portion is quoted in Ephesians 1. After Paul describes how Jesus has been raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians 1.20, verse 21 goes on to say this, "...far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come." He then writes this in verse 22, "...and He put all things under His feet." and gave Him to be head over all things to the church. And you want to follow this thinking here, because you're going to see a little bit of the already and not yet of eschatology. This is the already part. That Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He, as He has even noted Himself in Matthew 28, all dominion, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. So all things are under His feet. What's spoken of here in Psalm 8, verse 6 is true of Christ in this moment. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. That's the already part of this equation. But there's a not yet part of this equation too. And we'll see the writer of Hebrews call that out very uh, shortly. But first, I want to call your attention to 1 Corinthians 15, 27. You see the already not yet dynamic of Christ's reigning. All things are under Jesus' feet in one sense, ultimately, ultimately. In Ephesians chapter one verse 22, we see that. But the manifestation, when that is recognized by the whole world, and the manifestation of that when all rule and authority and power is ended, 1 Corinthians 15.24, when all enemies are put under His feet, 1 Corinthians 15.25, and when the last enemy who will be destroyed, which is death, is destroyed, verse 26, all that is still to come. So all things are under His feet. But as of right now, we do not see all things under His feet. And the writer of Hebrews says that very thing in Hebrews 2. Listen to this. In Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9, watch this use of Psalm 8. And this is where I think you will find great encouragement. For He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place. That's David testifying in Psalm 8. Saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hand. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. The writer of Hebrews continues and says this, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But we do not yet see all things put under Him. But we see Jesus. That's a line you want to hold on to. We don't see all things put under His feet yet. But what do we see? We see Jesus. Who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. So you have this design that we're seeing in Psalm 8. This design that God created man to have this unique role within the universe and exercise dominion as God's vice regent, properly imaging God in the world. But mankind, even though having that responsibility to exercise dominion does not image God rightly. And we do not see all things under the subjection of man's feet. For example, death still reigns, as you you might say, in the lives of fallen men and women in this world. But what do we see? We see Jesus. Why does the writer of Hebrews say that? You don't see all things in subjection under His feet, but this is what you do see. You see Jesus. You don't see mankind exercising the role that God has given to mankind to exercise in the way that He ought to exercise it, but you see one man who has been successful in doing what God has called man to do, and he has been crowned with glory and honor. There is one man who has all things under His feet right now and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't see all things under His feet but you see Him. He tasted death on behalf of every man. He was crowned with glory and honor for suffering to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He ascended 40 days later, is seated at the right hand of the Father. All dominion in heaven and earth has been given to Him. So you don't see all things in subjection under His feet but you see Him. And where is He? He's at the right hand of the Father. And what has he been crowned with? He's been crowned with glory and honor. He has all authority. So you see him. And then one day, this one who is bringing many sons to glory will have alongside of him sons and daughters of the living God, administrating his rule over the earth. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and you will see that the saints are called to reign with Christ on the earth. You think of Matthew 25, 21, where the good and faithful servant is told that he has been faithful or she has been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. So you don't see everything in subjection to Jesus right now. You see a lot of what might look like craziness and what does look like craziness. But it's not outside of the sovereignty of Christ, all things are under his feet. And the moment is coming when the manifestation... That's the not yet part. The already is the reality. He is ruling. He is reigning. God is using everything according to the purpose of His will. That's the already. The not yet is the manifestation of all things being put under His feet. Every enemy being put under the, feet of the, the foot of the Son, including death itself. And that awaits. And Jesus' successful work on earth and His subsequent resurrection and ascension is, if you will, the kind of down payment of the coming glory that's going to be exercised and that believers get to partake in when He comes and manifests His reign on this earth. So you don't see all things in subjection to Him. But son or daughter of God, what do you see one more time for now? Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor. Fitting that He would come to uh, where He started Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, David ends this psalm by saying, O Lord, or O Yahweh, how excellent is your name in all the earth. This is a psalm that largely contemplates the position of man in God's creation design. Not exclusively, because you have reference to the universe, the moon and the stars which you have made, but it's thinking about the psalm in large measure, God's creation. But it's not creation-centric. It's not man-centered. But we've spent a decent portion of this psalm looking at God's design for man, ultimately realized in the person of Christ and the redeemed who will be sharing with Him in His coming reign, the manifested version of His reign. And it's just a reminder to us that looking at creation, whether it's the universe or whether it's men and women or children, should lead us to glorify God. Not to glory in creation, not to glory in men, women, or children, but to glory in God, even as we admire his handiwork in creation. See, David began the psalm by saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And after he thinks of God's great glory displayed in creation and in man, and in the position that God has given man in His design, He comes back and He says, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how excellent is Your name in all the earth. His contemplation of creation and mankind does not lead Him to praise creation and mankind. It leads Him to praise God. And that too is very instructive for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You That through eyes of faith in the here and now, we see Jesus. We thank You for the One who has gone before us. For the One who has tasted death and suffered to the point of death, even death on the cross. He humbled Himself to the lowest place and You've raised Him up to the highest place thank You that You've seated Him at Your right hand. You've crowned Him with glory and honor. And all things are under His feet. And Father, we thank You that we who do not deserve to be children within Your family and participants in Your kingdom actually have this amazing calling to administer the kingdom with our Savior. What an amazing calling that You've given us. We know that we... Plunged, uh, we were plunged into ruin by our first father, as it were, Adam. And we know that we would have done the same thing because all were in Adam, as it were. And we thank You for the last Adam who has come and who has redeemed us from sin and absorbed Your wrath on our behalf. Father, help us to do what we see David do in this psalm. Help us to look up more at Your creation. Help us to look down and look at babies and children and let them be reminders to us of how You can use weak ones to silence strong ones. Help us, Heavenly Father, to see the the brilliance of Your design in creation. Help us, Heavenly Father, to administer the roles of responsibility that You have given us with benevolence and with wisdom. And Father, help us to keep looking to Jesus. I know that the same writer of Hebrews who said, but we see Jesus, would later call the readers to fix their eyes on that Jesus. So Father, will you help us, even this day afresh, to fix our eyes upon the one who has overcome, and thereby might we be reminded that one day we will overcome as well, and we will join Him. Hallelujah. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.